Steve and Kevin break down the Vintage Championship and what it means for the future of the metagame on episode 40 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 40 of So Many Insane Plays. In today's episode, we'll dig through the 2014 Vintage Championship results and delve into the evolving vintage metagame and where it's heading. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. Starting with announcements, Steve, any updates on your Gush book? I am plugging through it as fast as I can. I got stuck in, in one of the chapters. Um, I'm taking a break from that for just a little bit to, to crank out a Delver primer, but I'm, I am still hard at work. I mean, the book is finished. It's just being edited, and the editor sent it back to me, and there's just a lot to go through. And you're working on a Delver primer as well? Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna try and peel that off as quickly as possible. Um, you know, if the time is right, so... You know, it's something I can get cranked out before the Gush book, but, um, you know, there'll be a lot of overlap in content. And today's show will be a pretty good teaser for that Delver primer, yeah? I think so. <laughs> Regarding the Vintage Super League, now, if any of you haven't watched the last couple of weeks and don't want spoilers, skip ahead about a minute or two. But we're pleased to announce that our one and only Steve Menendian is now poised for the finals of the Vintage Super League. And the semifinals will be this coming Tuesday, October 11, which will feature Efro versus LSV in the 75-card Mirror, which should be exciting. The winner of that will face Steve the next Tuesday, the 18th. So tune in, watch the conclusion, the exciting conclusion of the Vintage Super League. I think it's going to be awesome. It has, it's been awesome already, but it's just going to continue to be awesome. So on to the meat of the show and the Vintage Championship results. Now, 2014 Vintage Champs were the biggest ever. 321 players, nine rounds of Swiss. It was a great event. It was a lot of fun. And Jason Jaco and Eternal Central have all the deck lists. And I mean all the deck lists. Not just the Vintage Champs deck lists, but the Legacy Champs deck lists and the trial tournament results. And and I should also mention the Old School Magic Vintage deck lists, or Old School Magic <laughs> deck lists. From Friday. And so I think at some point, Jaco will get some portion of those up and do a, a more complete metagame analysis. But we have managed to reconstruct the top 32 of the Vintage Championship results. I think, Kevin, you've got that uh, compiled and about ready for us to go. Yeah, unfortunately, we're still missing a couple of deck lists, but we can get the gist of what the top 32 looked like. And of course, we have the top eight, and it's well documented online already. So the breakdown of the top 32 looks approximately like this. I've got nine Delver lists, the most represented archetype, and those were divided relatively evenly amongst blue-red and rug derivations, though there was one four-color list also. So Delver was most represented, about a third of the top 32. Next were various combo decks, and those I've grouped together, but we're talking about Gush Storm, Ritual Storm, Doomsday, 
Magus Storm, none of which made top eight, but we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Yeah. I mean, just to, just to interrupt and make an observation here, going into this tournament, everyone sort of, I think the folks who were in the know saw Delver as the deck to beat. Mm-hmm. So not surprised that it performed as well as it did. Um, though I think one major difference between sort of the typical vintage tournaments, meaning local ones and large scale tournaments like this, is that combo always tends to be a little bit more represented in these tournaments because given the size of the field, you always get some of those players who come out of the woodwork wanting to play the vintage cards, you know, and, and combo is attractive to them. Also, combo, uh, you know, just um, tends to perform a little bit well in a little bit more of a, a random field, especially one that has a number of budget players in it. So, you know, last year, the example of this was Reed Duke um, and others playing combo. And, um, and, and like myself, I played combo last year. Um, I think combo always sees a little bit of a bump in these kinds of major marquee tournaments. And I can personally attest to the kind of motivations that you just described. We had definitely had some of these players are uh, combo aficionados. I know that Jesse Martin, for example, got 13th with his Ritual Storm deck. And I also know that a few just wanted to play something fun, like J.D. Neer, who got 17th on Doomsday, and he posted a report on the drain too, which was cool. The next most represented archetype in the top 32 were workshops with four, two of which made top eight, Roland Chang and Namtran. And then after that, it was just a mixture of a little bit of Oath, two archetypes, Dredge, two, Landstill, two. Now, we're still missing a couple results from the top 32, so some of these numbers might go up by one or two. But the big story is, as we already said, Delver was far and away the most represented individual yeah. archetype. Yeah. Mixture of combo decks, though no one stands out, the, none of which made top eight, but some were very close, which we'll talk about more. And then workshops. So Delver and workshops, really, uh, basically half of the workshops in the top eight, I'm sorry, in the top 32 made top eight, two out of four. Approximately the same for Delver, four out of nine. But I think the really interesting story is that both the Oath decks in the top 32 were in the top eight and the top four, and one of them was the winner. So Oath was very not very well represented in the top 32, but its conversion rate into the top eight was 100%, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Now, we don't have the full, workshop, full metagame. So which is pretty good as well. Workshop did very well. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, the picture is pretty clear. You know, in the in the broadest possible strokes, what's happening here is you, you have the deck to beat Delver Cruz, and you have two basic predators that are coming at it, Oath and Workshops. Mm-hmm. Around round three or four, Jacob Van Lunen interviewed me and said, what effects will Treasure Cruise, and this is on the Wizards website, what effect will Treasure Cruise have on the Vintage metagame? And I said, well, there's going to be a primary effect, which is the direct effect, and then some secondary or indirect effects. And I, obviously, the primary effect is it boosts the Delver archetype, but the, the specific secondary effect that I mentioned and he quoted is the immediate impact of Treasure Cruise is that it bolsters the Delver Secrets archetypes. The secondary impact is that it makes Oath the Druid decks better because the, those decks prey on the Delver decks. There's a little bit of an arms race that creates opening for other decks. Oath is definitely a deck that can take advantage of this. The Delver decks have become streamlined for treasure crews and no longer get to play with powerful situational cards like Trigon Predator. The last part is not an exact quote, um, but something I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But the point is that I sort of <laughs> here predicted in round three that Oath would do really well in this tournament. Um, and that just happened to be the case. Um, I think, though, that um, there's some specific sort of thread to this we need to tease out. Um, but overall, the picture is pretty clear uh, in terms of what happened. That both workshops on the one hand and Oath on the other hand were very well poised to predate the Delver decks. We can talk about why, uh, but that seems to be the general pattern. Absolutely. And in the top eight, 
it appears that both Oath and Delver were prepared for workshops well enough because in the top eight, the, sh- the two shops decks lost in the quarterfinals. And then the rest of the top four was just the Delvers and the Oaths against each other. And Oath well, came out on top. Right. I mean, that's obviously a very specific analysis. I suppose this is as good a time as any to delve into this. But so um, I think that it's a little bit of an overstatement to say that the workshop, that the Delver decks were really well prepared for for um, workshops. I think they were perhaps prepared enough. And I think the guy who got second place got there was a very lucky draw against Roland. (laughs) It allowed him to win his his match. Um, It was like he had to draw. I think it was he had to draw land exactly the one turn. I'll have to watch that again. But um, and also, I should, it just should be noted that um, that Ryan, who we'll get to the specific deck list later, but Ryan, who um, made it to the top four with one of the Delver decks, and in fact, Ryan is one of the people I've been testing with for the Vintage Super League. Um, I wonder, you know, um, he played uh, the eventual winner in the semifinals and he took him to a three game match in the last game. um, Mark resolved an early oath, um, but Ryan couldn't uh, couldn't sort of doesn't have a removal spell and couldn't get a cage to stick. And so he eventually had to um, set up a situation where he had time walk and treasure and Trigon Predator. But on the turn he was going to do that, he failed to preordain before playing the time walk. And um, he uh, got his time walk countered. He just threw it out there with no protection. Had he preordained, he would have been able to play either a a pyroblast or a force of will to protect it. Hmm. Um, And had he done that, he would have been able to play the the predator. And he, once he realized his mistake, he played ice, try and draw a card and he drew a land. The next card down was a pyroblast. And then the card below that was force. Um, And Harry and Mark, only had one counter, I believe. And and so Ryan would have been able to not only resolve Time Walk Trigon Predator, but even with that mistake, the, had he held ice, he still would have won because he played uh, uh, either one or two Pyromancers and had an array of tokens because he'd been holding so many cards for this moment. He would have been able to ice the Gristlebrand one turn and win the game. He came very close even at the end, but, but it obviously it was, was too late. I have another story along those lines, which that plus this definitely goes to show that any given magic tournament can can turn on the the flip of a coin or the roll of a die because our friend and team serious member Jacob Hilty, who ended up getting ninth place on tiebreakers on tiebreakers, mind you. So he had the same amount of points as fifth place Ryan Glacken did and everyone else. He got ninth place because he drew into ninth place. He drew into ninth place because he thought that the match that was going on next to him had one kind of resolution because visually it appeared that it had, but it had actually had the other. I don't want to speak too much for Jacob, but the point is, is they misinterpreted, I think, the visual cues from a match near them, chose to draw because they felt they were going to get in. That draw... <laughs> happened after the end of game two in their match where jacob had won game one and in game two he was playing gush storm against the eventual second place player dario moreno game two jacob had boarded in his oath transformational sideboard he had resolved oath activated it once to get uh, blightsteel colossus into play was poised to win on the following turn through dario's various creatures oathed a second time for Gristlebrand, and it was the last card in his library. So Jacob had almost, very nearly, legitimately won his match, and would have been a win and in for the top eight. 
Instead, he loses to the, the, the luck of the oath, decides to draw then with his opponent at that point, having almost nearly won the match already, and then gets ninth place. Knocked out. Yeah. So this top eight, it, I just would caution anyone from yeah. reading too much into but, any individual top eight for he, reasons still, like this. But even still, even, despite the fact that I think you know, um, you know, Ryan could have easily won the tournament with Delver. Sure. I think the point is the point is that there that um, the dynamic is that. That Delver's got this very recent boost with Treasure Cruise, mm-hmm. and 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 most of the people who played who, who who decided to play Delver have not been playing Delver for the last year, and and the reason that matters is because they I don't think were well prepared for Oath, and not only that, but I, I don't think that they that the Delver decks that were doing well just before Eternal Weekend were really were really well suited for workshops either. That is to say that. People had built these uh, very powerful and almost overly hyper-focused Delver decks that are almost typically all blue-red. Mm-hmm. But without green, I don't think you can reliably beat Oath or Workshops. And this is the big lesson that I had in the summer at the NYSE. And we talked about the NYSE in an earlier podcast. So from November of last year until you know until today, I have been playing Delver decks in Vintage. And it's, as people in the VSL said, that's how they sort of most no- known me for which is kind of funny because I've been playing combo and a lot of other times <laughs> the last couple of years. But but the, the key lesson I, I learned going into the NYSE was that you have to have a green splash in order to combat both workshops and Oath, but Oath in particular. That is to say that Cage is not enough. You need Trigon Predators and you need a Nature's Plane or some combination of those. And, um, and, and, and green also gives you one of the second best cards. Of course, Trigon Predator is incredible against workshops, but it also gives you access to um, Ancient Grudge. And, and so what I'm trying to say is that if you're just building the most powerful Delver deck you can, you're probably not going to play green. You're just going to play straight blue red. Mm-hmm. And what that does is, yes, you have some good, uh, lots of good anti-workshop tactics like like uh, Dak and uh, Ingachur, but it's not enough. That green is the is the is the color that puts you in really over the top in a sense against those strategies, um, and, and especially Oath. So. Uh, I thought that going into this tournament, I thought there would be a lot of people playing Delver decks, but I thought that they would mostly fail, mostly fail. Not The way I put it is to the people I was talking with like you, 95% of the Delver decks here are going to be, are going to lose to Oath and Workshop. And the very few percentage, the three to 5% who are adequately prepared and competitive in those matchups are going to be the ones that can win this tournament. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but, but what, but the danger, and this is, this is the problem, boosting the workshop in oath matchup weakens you in the Delver mirror by a marginal amount. Mm-hmm. So, for example, and this is the dynamic that I really don't like that Treasure Cruise introduced in this this format is that it's a little bit analogous to how we've talked about the blue arms race in the past, right? The cards like Mental Misstep and Flusterstorm create a blue arms race in the sense that they're cards that are really powerful in the blue mirrors, but terrible against workshops. And and so you can make yourself really strong in the blue mirror, but you weaken your workshop matchup. So part of Vintage is striking that balance. But the printing of Treasure Cruise actually accelerates that because cards like Gitaxian Probe are so good in Treasure Cruise Delver decks, but so bad against workshops. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, Gitaxian Probe makes you better in the mirror, and perhaps, uh, but it certainly boosts, makes Treasure Cruise better, um, and therefore potentially makes the, the, the mirror better. But it means that you're 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 playing this sort of hyper-focused Delver deck that's weaker in all these other relevant matchups. And so that's a very a tricky balance to, to strike. And, and part of it, it would be different if a lot of these Delver players had been playing De- Delver for the last six months. But this is a printing that's brand new. This is a card that people had just turned on to in a set that just came out. 
And so a lot of the people who got on the Delver bandwagon, appropriately so, and I completely respect them for doing so, people like Rich Shea, who who had not been playing Delver, who'd been playing Control Slaver for the last couple of months, right? And before that, uh, Storm, mm-hmm. um, got on the Delver bandwagon because of Treasure Cruise. But I think he lost, he went six and three. I think he lost twice to Dredge. I, I know he lost at least once to Dredge. And he said after the tournament, he thought the deck was weak to Oath and Dredge. And I'm not going to get into a back and forth with him about it, but... But that is something I sort of had solved before this tournament because I've been playing the archetype for a long time. So going, you know, my, in my NYSE report, I talked about how do you position Delver to beat Dredge, Workshops, and Oath? The three things I spent the most time about and what sort of sideboard configurations do you design to solve all three of those matchups? And the answer is is partly green, right? So that's why I play two Trigons. The deck that I'm playing in the VSL is almost, it's 73 of the 75 cards I played in the championship. But there is a tricky balance, right? So, you know, you, you make your deck stronger for these other matchups, but you also don't want to lose your edge in, in the mirror at all. So I think that's part part of what was going on here is that um, I anticipated that a lot of these Delver decks would be inadequately prepared for these predatory strategies, and the ones that were would do well. Um, but unfortunately, part of the other dynamic to summarize is that the decks that do really well in the Delver Mirror may actually be less prepared than the other decks for um, for these other matchups. And I think that that was borne out by the top eight. So the, the, the Delver deck that had three Trigon Predators main deck lost to the Mirror, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he but I think he would have been fine against, or at least much better off against O. Absolutely. And what do you think about the notion that, well, we have a lot of different topics to cover with regard to this top eight, but the metagame shift that you referred to is obviously borne out here. And in addition to your observations about the Delver players, I believe that the Oath players that did well in this event demonstrated that their lists were also prepared for Delver and workshops, as we expected. And I think they were rewarded as such. Well, well, I I, I want to get your take on sort of you selected Oath for this this tournament. I I completely you know I said as you were considering it, it's a great choice. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be very well positioned. Um, but. I think that there are a couple other dynamics that are important to sort of just elucidate. So actually, I'd just like to step back for a second and talk about sort of the last year in Vintage, right? Yeah. So last year at the Vintage Championship, we had, was it two or three Delver decks in the top eight? Yep. I don't remember. It was, it was a lot. And they were very well positioned, but they were Goyf-based decks. And a couple months after that tournament, uh, well, a month afterwards, I, going up to that tournament, I had been playing pitch, uh, Burning Tendrils and then later Pitch Burning Tendrils, and I couldn't beat Bug. <laughs> and so the reason I turned to Delver is because I wanted a deck that could beat Bug. Bug was, you may recall, one of the best performing decks of last year. It won especially the bizarre in Europe, Mo- yeah. Yeah, especially in Europe. Won the Bizarre Moxon, the Eurovino, which is dominating. It was so strong against Workshop because you've got it, we sort of exhaustively broke down the, the some of those tournament finals where yep. you saw how Bug just annihilated the Workshop decks. You know, with Deathrite Shaman, Trigon Predators, Abrupt Decay, Snuff Out. I mean, just had everything. Um, the Delver decks with Goyf and Pyromancer pushed Bug to the side. It, it sort of marginalized Bug, which had been sort of in some sense the best performing deck. And um, I had decided that I couldn't play my Burning Oath combo deck because it just couldn't beat Bug. I, I just got creamed by Bug over and over again. So I wanted a deck that would beat Bug. And so that's why I picked up Delver. And, and you may recall, Kevin, all the Delver decks, virtually all of them had Tarmogoyf until, I don't know, maybe six or seven months ago, I posted on the Mana Drain that people yep. should start playing blue-red Delver. And and suddenly you see a lot of invitation deck lists, and I was performing very well out here with blue-red. And it became very, very popular, especially on um, Magic Online, where I was playing it a lot as well. And and then I top-aided the NYSE, 
But the sh again, I added green for oath and, and whatever. But the point is that one of the major innovations was to cut goif entirely. And I, I think I was one of the first people to really do to do that and make a statement with that, um, where you just go all in on Pyromancer. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, the important thing is that, th this is the key, the rise of the bug decks actually helped keep Oath at bay. Because Abrupt Decay, this time last year, was everywhere. I mean, you had not only bug decks, but you had like keeper decks, control decks all over the Northeast were playing Abrupt Decay. You played Abrupt Decay in your top eight deck last year, the keeper deck, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So Abrupt Decay had an important function at keeping the Oath decks in the margins of the field. And so what you have is a very clear dynamic, right? You have Delver coming in and pushing the bug decks to the margins and Abrupt Decay decks. It creates a space for Oath. And with Treasure Cruise, you have this boost to Delver decks, but it's a boost, a sort of like a short-term memory boost for Delver players who aren't sort of familiar with every single matchup. And so the Oath players were doubly well-positioned. They were well-positioned because the Delver decks were unprepared for them, most of them. And secondly, the Delver decks pushed into the margins the, the archetypes that were really the strongest against Oath. That is, the Abrupt Decay archetypes. Mm-hmm. What had arisen over the last year in six months in the Northeast, you know, whereas this time last year there was a lot of abrupt decay control decks, this time, in the last six months, if you've been paying attention to the metagame, and I had the, the benefit of this last year for me in terms of vintage has been among the most active ever because I played in the NYSE, I played in the Waterbury, I played in the Vintage Championship, and I've obviously been extremely active on Magic Online with vintage. So what I was able to see in the Northeast was there was a rise in blue-white control decks, whereas last year people were playing blue-black-green control decks this past year people had really come into preference around these blue white decks and so you had like this array of blue white decks that we've talked about in the past you know six months the bomberman decks the spirit of the labyrinth decks the um the magus decks but you know some version of those sometimes they have a um the equipment dude stoneforge mystic um and and um and so those decks were actually i think in some ways well positioned for delver but until Treasure Cruise was printed. <laughs> um, I had actually made a metagame adjustment for those decks. If I was playing Delver at the, in, in the Vintage Championship and there had been no Treasure Cruise, I would have played one Null Rod for those archetypes. Um, because a lot of the blue-white control decks, and you're going to see this coming out of the post-Vintage Championships in the Northeast, and if you look at the Landstill decks that did well, and you look at some of the other sort of control decks, they're going to rely a lot on engineered explosives as board sweep, which makes Null Rod even better. Not to mention just Bomberman itself needs... <laughs> relies a lot on artifacts. So what I'm saying is that if you take a broader view of the vintage metagame, you look at the trends. There are patterns that you miss if you don't look. So the effects of what we're seeing are can be easily missed if you don't understand sort of through local knowledge what's actually happening. Um, and part of it is that the vintage players who played those you know bug control decks a year ago, four color control decks a year ago, position themselves with blue white now because you know the temple of the format is always sort of like the Grixis control deck, right? And so it's how do you position yourself vis-a-vis I tend to position myself with gush decks vis-a-vis -vis the, the tentpole deck. Um, other people, though, in the Northeast, like Josh Pachusek, etc., tend to play a harder control deck. So a control deck that can out-control, you know, a slower one. Um, I I play decks that are have role flexibility. But what I'm saying is that going forward, 
Um, if there hadn't, going forward, I think those decks are going to be more prominent because they're popular in the Northeast. But had there not been Treasure Cruise, I don't think this metagame would have been as clearly defined. I think Delver would have ultimately performed very well as it did last year, but obviously would not have been, it wouldn't have reshaped the metagame in the way that it clearly did here. And, and one of the things I'd like to suggest is I think the metagame is less diverse as a result. I think the period up to Cons of Tarkir was one of the most diverse vintage metagames we've ever seen, right? We had blue-white control decks, we had Landstill decks, we've got Doomsday decks, combo decks, uh, Delver decks. But but now Delver has just sort of reoriented and reshuffled the entire metagame. It, it's reoriented it and, and focused it and centralized it in a way that I think is less diverse than we had before. Before the time you're referring to, before Treasure Cruise, we would not have had a top 32 like this that had fully a third of it represented right. by one deck. It is interesting to note that Workshops won both the Water Bear and the NYSE, but they didn't win the Vintage Championship. Um, and it could, which suggests to me that the decks going into this were probably pretty well prepared for Workshops, more so than would normally be the case. Um, I'm not sure why that is, but I, I would also say that I think, you know, um, a good, again, we're looking at a small slice of the Delver decks. There are a lot of Delver decks in the field. We don't know exactly how many, but the ones who made it this far had to be, had to have sort of been in that top 5% that I was talking about that were prepared for Workshops. Or there were players that were well versed in the deck itself. Even then, the I, I think we're we're at risk of being a little too results oriented from the yeah. the top eight itself. But right. I would point out that after Oath, which as I said put two of two from the top thirty two into the top four. After that, Workshops were the next best converting yep. deck in terms of yep. reaching the top eight. And I would also point out that Roland Chang, former Vintage and Legacy champion, put out uh, former Vintage Top 8 competitor Blaine Christensen on Workshops in the last round of the event. So they knocked another one. one uh, so does. Roland knocked another Workshop player out of the Top 8. If Blaine had won that matchup with Roland, there would have been three Workshop decks in the Top 8 in lieu of one of the Delvers probably. And if the strangeness with Jacob and his results slash draw hadn't happened, then uh, Gush Storm would have likely been in the top eight instead of uh, one of the Delver decks also. Instead of the second place Delver deck, I might point out. So uh, in lots of rolls of the dice here, we could have had three Workshop decks in the top eight and three Delver decks and two Oath decks. I mean... yeah, uh, the results could have been dramatically different. We don't know. Yeah, but I, I, in terms of top, th- in terms of the top thirty-two and the conversion and performance, the trends that you're describing definitely played out, and there was definitely a contraction of the metagame into these three primary archetypes. I mean, the rest—it's well, just a smattering of everything else. I, I'm being a, a little bit repetitive here, but if but to illustrate my point another way, if someone had just taken Rich Shea's Delver deck from the VSL weeks six through nine, that deck is not beating a workshop deck. Yeah, just you know, or or any many of the decks that have been doing well in the vintage online dailies to the extent there have been are, are the same sort of problem they're really good against blue decks really good in the mirror but they're not beating workshops and i understand rich overly metagamed it but if you look at so, i just want to remind folks i was the first person to play delver in the vintage super league i played it in weeks four through six and my deck folks will recall i beat chris pakula on um yeah um and and they were sort of joking that i had every single card you know but that that you could have as anti-workshop card but the truth of the matter is that that's not far off from what i actually would have played and nor what i did i ended up playing you know nature's claim ancient grudge trigon predator ingot chewer and a mountain you know (laughs) um and dak faden actually in the championship um i I do want why when i'm talking about workshops i just want to make one other point which is that the workshop players had to really well position themselves as well i talked to roland chang for a bit and he said before the tournament he wasn't sure whether to play Terra Nova or Martello. I don't like those terms. I think they're terrible. But um, 
in terms of describing these archetypes because they're so es- such an esoteric term. But I, I said you made absolutely the right call. And you don't need to be a workshop expert to see that. If you just sort of immerse in the vintage metagame, you can see why that's the right call. If the Waterbury, I think Terra Nova was the right call. It's the one that won the tournament. But it was the right call because at the Waterbury of 70 players, and I think by far the most predominant deck was blue-white control. That's what I predicted going in, and I, I went 5-2. and two. I probably should have just played Delver, but I didn't want, you know, it was so obvious that I'd been playing Delver, you know, I didn't want to sort of make myself an easy target. Um, but the point, though, is that in a blue-white control field, Null Rod is an incredibly powerful tactic. And a Treasure Cruise Delver field, Null Rod is not an incredibly powerful tactic. Yep. And Martello is much better positioned in that kind of field. Um, so, you know, I, I believe the workshop decks going forward will make some adjustments. I think right when Young Pyromancer came out, Detweiler and the Farinos had some really good anti-Pyromancer shot builds, and I suspect those will come back. One, of, one other factor, so you could sort of, you know, I think it's really easy to get lost in in the weeds without thinking of, without connecting the weeds to sort of the, the treetops or the, the the forest the bigger story and um one of the stories that we can't lose sight of is that this summer had the printing of dak faden mm-hmm. and so the workshop decks had to make an adjustment to that and one of those adjustments happens to be phyrexian revoker it also happens to be the case that phyrexian revoker is pretty bad against delver decks so and oath and oath which which creates this tension in in workshop design where you 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 know you have a lot of really good but overly narrow answers like null rod really good in one metagame really weak in another mm-hmm. so the workshop players that were on terra nova i just think were very poorly positioned they sh- you know so to be a workshop player is not an easy thing right now where you've got a lot of dak fadens running around and on the one hand and you've got you know a lot of delver decks on the other hand you've got to sort of pick and choose your battles and and uh you know uh i played against a number of work i went completely undefeated against workshops <laughs> um you know the um um what's the dismember card that workshop players are going to use? Maybe that card needs to be some sort of board sweeper or, or something else. But um, I think we're going to see some adjustments from workshops going forward along the lines that we had seen, you know, a, a, around this a year ago this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they need to dust off the anti-pyromancer stuff that you alluded to. Yeah. And to your point about the positioning of Terra Nova, it's worth mentioning that the four workshop decks that we know of in the top 32, none of those were Terra Nova. Those yep. are all me- yep. bigger metalworker slash forge master builds. Completely makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see an entirely new sort of workshop flavor, so to speak, emerge that uh, that is you know may, may harken back to some of those early post pyromancer builds, but but that are are better suited to, to dealing with treasure cruise delver. And possibly just better suited to dealing to removing uh, diverse permanents as well, since I already think that workshops do, they still have to work very hard to overcome Oath. They have to pay a lot of attention to that. Ratchet Bomb can deal with both. Ratchet Bomb was exactly what I was thinking of to deal with Oath and to deal with Delver and or Pyromancer tokens. Yeah. So I think the Ratchet Bomb is an example of the sort of card that you'll see cropping up more to address these issues. I know that I sort of gave a big broad sweep, but I think it's important to put those various perspectives together. Not to say that I have like an objective perspective of the metagame, but I've been immersed in this for the last year. Yeah. trying to help people fit together these various pieces. I think that you have touched on the issue a couple of times during your perspective, but I would like to point out for our audience too that we would be remiss if we didn't point out the effect of the Vintage Super League on this event and on the Delver archetype in particular. I I don't have proof per se, but I talked to a couple of newer players 
players introduce themselves to me. And, and if you're one of those people that came up and shook my hand during the event, thank you. It was great meeting all of you. The conversations almost universally with those players centered around the Vintage Super League, Delver, and Treasure Cruise. And I am confident in saying that at least a couple of those players, and I imagine many others that I didn't meet, were directly inspired by Vintage Super League decks and showed up with builds very similar to what that small group of players are playing, yourself included. And as you've already said, I think that those lists were definitely not well positioned. Literal, <laughs> those literal yeah. lists were not well positioned for this event. Uh, just, just let me go off on a little bit of a rant here. I already sort of had a, a longer sort of exposition of my view of the metagame, but now I'm going to make it a little more personal. I, I really was very unhappy with Cons of Tarkir. <laughs> very unhappy personally because I've been playing this Delver deck for the last year, and I knew I was going to be playing the Vintage Championship, and I've been refining it. There have been a couple iterations, right? And then they print this card that makes Delver clearly the the favorite, the deck to beat. That's a very frustrating position to be in <laughs> and and i could let it get the better of me or i could join the bandwagon right and so if i had been in the stubborn position of not joining the treasure cruise bandwagon i would have really been in trouble i mean not that i did as well as i'd hoped but you, you can't you can't do that to yourself when you're playing magic but it really did also mess me up in the vintage super league because remember going into my my week six match i was in first place i was five and oh in the vintage super league and i am faced with this decision of what to play in the final three weeks which happened to be just two weeks before the Vintage Championship. And Mm -hmm. obviously I'm working on Treasure Cruise Delver, but if I play that in the Vintage Super League, then I'm showing my my deck for the Vintage Championship. I can't Mm -hmm. do that. So I had to find a deck that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't Treasure Cruise Delver, and of course Rich Shea had to play it, which made it you know awful <laughs> for me because I, anyway um, you know so yeah I mean I probably should have just ended up playing Treasure Cruise Delver and maybe I wouldn't even had to have a playoff against LSV because I probably could have gone two and one in the final three weeks. I did the, my first instinct though was to play O, but I think it was you who said that everyone's playing Cage because Tom Martell had gone three and O. The previous week so i i played angel city vault which i thought by the way was not this is another another key point though i just like to make as i trans bridge out of this rant um it, there is a tremendous difference between i think local vintage tournaments even daily vintage tournaments and the vintage championship in in the respect that this is a nine round tournament mm-hmm I don't remember if last year was last year's eight or nine. It was eight, right? Yeah. Nine rounds. When you when that difference between seven and nine rounds is actually enormous. It makes consistency so much more of a premium. Mm-hmm. In decks like Steel City Vault and Angel City Vault, just don't have the consistency. And all these other decks lack the consistency of the Delver decks. The Delver deck just has the hyper consistency that you can't get anywhere else in vintage. Um, when you pack in, and, and this is actually another difference. So the the Delver decks that existed this time last year, Kevin, you might recall, they didn't have four preordains. Mm-hmm. They ran like two preordains. Like the second place deck had two preordains, I think. Maybe even one. That's another thing that I really pushed in the last year in playing Delver is not just the shift from Goyf to all in on Pyromancer, but secondly, going all in preordain. The point is that when you play a deck with four preordains, and gosh, you have a lot more consistent, and sometimes good action, but you have a lot more consistency in these other decks. And so I think that the dynamic at the large tournament like that, consistency is at a premium in decks that have slider variants. It can be even very marginal greater variants are weeded out in the mm. long run. And I don't think that's going to play out in these local tournaments. So I think what's going to happen, and I've articulated this perspective elsewhere, I think the vintage metagame is not going to look like the vintage championship metagame at the local level for the next couple of months. But at the highest level, I think when we see the NYSE, when we see the Waterberries, the bigger tournaments in Europe, 
I think it's going to look more like the Vintage Championship in the sense that you're going to see the format anchored by Delver, and Delver being the, the best deck to beat, the best deck. But there's going to be, you're not going to see that always at the local level because the, the decks with slider variants that may have, you know, uh, some edge in some way, some tactical or strategic edges over Delver will continue to do well. I mean, so I think an example of that is probably this, this City Vault decks. Uh, you know, Brian won a local tournament the week before, and he, you know, tried to convince me to play it. And I was, I said, Brian, Treasure Cruise is a problem. You need to understand that's the deck to beat. Um, but, you know, Paul and Brian, both Paul Mastriano, former vintage champion, and Brian DeMars, uh, you know, obviously a vintage aficionado, they played a deck that I think just can't. Same as Ari Lax, played the City Vault, Danny Batterman, who, you know, just for their skill level, they should have been in the top, right? I mean, but I think they played a deck that had too much variance. I would agree completely. And the I think that's another reason why Delver was attractive to a lot of players. Some maybe converts from Legacy, maybe new players to Vintage, all of the above point to, hey, this deck is very, very uniform in its performance. And I think that some of the Oath decks also, at least the ones in the top two, and, and to pilot a deck like that, like Oaths, particularly through a nine-round event and through the elimination rounds after, you have to run good, I think. Yeah. You have to have a little bit of the run good, but then you have to have built your deck to minimize the bad draws as best you can. Right. And Oath has a lot more variance than a lot of other decks in terms it, of how you can do that. It's worth noting that these Oath decks all had preordained. Yeah. And the presence of things like show and tell in your list is a, is a big pivot point for these Oath decks. Other things like your Planeswalker configuration, Jace versus Tezzeret, Tinker for Blightsteel, Key Vault. These are the pivot points that these Oath decks can, can change on, and I think you're going to see a lot of variation there. We, the two in the top eight, even though you would call them both uh, control Oath decks, do have some key differences. But the as you've observed, the local tournament level, the kind of changes you might make to a deck like Delver or a deck like right. Oath or these workshop yeah. decks, as we've said, they won't manifest powerfully uh, unless you take a real step back and look at large tournaments and or large time periods and shifts in local events. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I think that's what we're going to observe. I also think that again um, that because there's you know a lot of these people are bandwagon Delver players, which I'm not. That's not a criticism. In fact, if someone had been sort of wedded to a deck and they decided that the Cruise deck is just the best deck to play and they switch to it, that's actually worth applauding. That's a big move. That's, that's a good choice. Yeah, it's it's the right choice. Um, but those decks, those players might not have sort of again the deep reservoir of experience of someone who's been playing it for the last year, and so they might not understand how to translate the deck into a local field. So just again, I've said this, but for example, if I was taking my deck into the Northeast, I would play a main deck Null Rod. Again, because the density of blue-white decks is going to be much higher, and you need that to fight. You know, you can power through it with Treasure Cruise, but I would probably have one Null Rod somewhere in my 75 mm -hmm. for those archetypes. But that's not something you would, that's not a decision you would make at the Vintage Championship. It would just be the wrong decision. Right. The number of so, Landstill or Bomberman players that you're going to see in the Vintage Champs this year was obviously low. Right. Even though Josh Pachusek uh, very narrowly lost to the runner-up, Dario, in, in, in the late rounds of the Swiss. I think it was round eight or round nine. 
You mean nearly beat him? No, nearly, very nearly lost to him. Oh, okay, nearly went, lost. Yeah. So he almost won, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, Joshua's close to making top eight with Landstill this year. Right. Um, it's also interesting just in watching people play. <laughs> not only did people not have the de- their decks designed to beat O, but they actually didn't, they, I think they were playing poorly against it. So in one of the, I think in the round eight match, the guy ran out of turn one Delver against the Oath deck. I think he, I don't know if he, I, I think he knew he was on Oath. In the top eight, he they knew their opponents. And again, players did the same thing. And then I think Ryan may have even done that. When you're playing against Oath and you're a Delver player, you do not run out a Delver early. <laughs> Even if you think you can get a lot of damage, you just don't do it. You hold it and, until you're sure that you can sort of protect yourself from an oath resolving. You've got mm-hmm. to use the, the Delver is better as pitching to force a will bait than actually a 3 3 creature there. Yep. Then I understand that you can eventually race, but Delver is not going to race out. A Pyromancer can, but a Delver is not. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's one of the definitely the pivot points of experience with that matchup is that. If it's both players are playing correctly, then that matchup should go quite long. I mean, the game should go late. Right. And your jockeying for position is mostly surrounding Cage, at least right. for the types of builds that showed up at Vintage Champs. But in game one, your plan is to prevent Oath from resolving. And yeah. failing that, you have to you have to um, time walk and Trigon Predator. So, or, uh, or just try and get... I mean, if your draw yeah. can't do those things, you have to get so far ahead on board that you can yes. do things like Ice Gristlebrand for the win. Exactly, exactly. That, and, and you got to get like double Pyromancer and a ton of tokens. And right, and right. bolt them out. Exactly, and help to bolt them out. So, but I, I think in almost any any game one, if there's if if the Delver has any chance of playing a turn one Delver, any chance of inhibiting your ability to to keep Oath off the table, no matter how slight, it's the wrong play. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's good point. It sounds so. It sounds like as we. I mean, we've pretty thoroughly covered at least what went into the top 32 here, the motivating factors for the prior year. But if anyone is playing vintage at a local level, I would personally not recommend just copying a list from the the vintage champs top eight. You have to understand what's going on in your local metagame, what you're likely to face, depending on how large your local metagame is. Right. And and the motivations that Steve you just described for many of the key card choices for these, especially these Delver lists, yeah. Because as I said about the Vintage Super League going into this, don't copy a Vintage Super League deck and take it to Vintage Champs, and don't necessarily copy a Vintage Champs deck and take it to a local tournament. Right, exactly. But understanding how to tailor it means you have to understand the dynamics. Exactly, which is which is not easy. No, that's the skill. Yep. So where do you want to go next? We definitely have to touch on. We've touched on Cruz obviously indirectly and its effect on the metagame, but we have to touch on Cruz versus Dig, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I think the very first week that cons became legal in the Vintage Super League, I was on camera with Randy Bueller, and he, I think he and others were saying that they thought Dig Through Time would be the better one. I said, no, I think Treasure Cruise is the better one. Um, uh, Treasure Cruise just seems to have just shaken up magic, period. Um, and how many Treasure Cruises do we have in this, this top eight? Oh, you know, it's interesting. There are four decks, but they don't all have four Treasure Cruises. There two of them have three and two of them have four that's right we've got 14 i decided to play three but i don't know if that's the right call i'll just say that you know my critique of of treasure cruise and delver is that it's um it's it's not really playable on the first two turns and um it's so powerful that you have to play it um but it's not really powerful in the first three turns so with gush not being a turn one or two play either there's a maximum number of those things that you can run so what i think is interesting is looking not only at how many treasure cruise people run but how many gush people run um and so the decks that had four 
Treasure Cruise, I think, ran two gush. And the decks that ran, um, I think the second place deck had three gush and three Treasure Cruise, uh, as well as the as well as Christian's uh, deck. Let me yeah, just verify. I'm, I'm double checking here. You're correct. In yeah. in every case, the total of Treasure Cruise and gush was six, either three yeah. three or four two. Right. Yes. So so, and again, that's not something you would observe unless you have familiar with the, with the archetype. But it has to do with part of it is Delver has to survive the first couple turns, especially against Oath. And that's why Spell Pierce is there. Spell Pierce is basically a complete blank a lot of times after the first couple turns, but its function is to keep Oath off the table until you can sort of accumulate your card advantage so that Force and all of the other secondary counter spells can protect Force to keep Oath off the table. So people have to understand that. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, there's a max number of Treasure Cruise and Gushes that you can run. In the Vintage Super League, I'm, I <laughs> I almost ran three Cruise and three Gush, but let's be honest, I'm not going to play less than four Gush. So, <laughs> so I, I played four Gush and three Treasure Cruise, but there are a lot of times, you know, in the mid-game where you'd wish you just had another Treasure Cruise. I just, I will mention one other thing, that no one, none of these players have Mystical Tutor. Oh, yeah. no, one of them did. I'm sorry. I, that's wrong. Christian had Mystical Tutor, and um, yeah, but he was it. I definitely think the Delver deck should have mystical tutor and it's it's a maligned card period <laughs> but it's especially maligned in this kind of decks because of the so-called card disadvantage but mystical tutor does so much um first of all mystical tutor for treasure cruise is awesome <laughs> because mystical cruise for treasure for mystical tutor for treasure cruise people are going to resolve because they think you're getting ancestral which is is countered by um Mis mental misstep but you every single time you could just get treasure cruise and it feeds the treasure cruise and it in it in it obviously uh is is uh incredibly powerful treasure cruise obviously incredibly powerful the other thing is that i have a, a nature's claim in my sideboard so mystical tutor is great at that if people want to try and figure out more answers to oath mystical tutor also gets ancient grudge against workshops but i think also there are these other uses of mystical tutor that people ignore so Mystical Tutor is really good at ramping storm count when you are about to play Flusterstorm. Mystical Tutor is really good at finding the situational counterspell that you need when you have Gush in hand. So you can Mystical Tutor in response to something and then play Gush to draw it at instant speed, find counterspell, um, which you can't do with the Merchant Scroll, obviously. And it's especially good if that's the play you're doing when you're finding Flusterstorm in the late game, mm -hmm. because the Flusterstorm is going to have no less than Storm 4 at that point, right? And it, happens to have, yeah. and it happens to have synergy with Delver and Young Pyromancer and oh. Snapcaster Mage one if you play favorite, that. Yeah, one of my favorite plays in the format is turn one Delver, turn two Mystical Tutor. Yeah. You can get Time Walk. You know, it's, it's just, you flip the Delver and you're really cooking with fire. I, I mean, it's, it's just so good. Um, and obviously, if you can get cards like Fire Ice, it can be a blowout. But um, Mystical Tutor, is, the point I'm trying to make is it has a huge boost with Treasure Cruise. <laughs> It's, it feeds the treasure cruise and finds treasure cruise. And I would say that the, the traditional maligning of mystical that you that you commented on is born out of a history of control decks, of managing exactly. decks. Exactly. And that that history, well, it's it's important to understand the history. But all the reasons why people have started to malign mystical in those drain decks don't apply here. That's right. Yeah, that's right. If you take the experience of Mystical Tutor in one context and try and apply another, you'll come to the wrong conclusion. Yeah. I mean, people were commentating on the Vintage Super League uh, with my Delver deck and thinking I would sideboard out Mystical Tutor just because... <laughs> because it, people it, do that. Exactly. Right. <laughs> but it is, it is interesting that, I mean, it's <laughs> Treasure Cruise is so powerful that you want to actually get Treasure Cruise and not Ancestral when you play Mystical Tutor. It just shows you how powerful Treasure Cruise is. Absolutely. Now let's compare to Dig Through Time. 
there there are 14 treasure cruises in the the top eight here there are two dig through times in harry corvacy's oath list yeah i think you know i think we actually nailed it in our set review in terms of our analysis of where these these cards would show up we mm-hmm. were obviously way low in our predictions but probably better than everyone else who did a vintage a vintage set review so you know we can at least applaud ourselves for that <laughs> uh i don't think brian demars even had it in his list of playable vintage cards <laughs> we at least had it these two cards as our top two cards um I, my comment, one of my comments about it, and I agree with you, but one of them, my comments in summary was that treasure crews would be played in greater numbers. Right. Dig through time would be played in greater decks, meaning exactly. greater number yes. of decks. And that definitely was borne out at Vintage Champs. I saw dig through time in multiple archetypes from Grixis right. to Oath to Doomsday to Storm, different Storm decks. Yeah. It was all over the place. And treasure yeah. crews was... Far and away there in greater numbers, but people were excited about Dig Through Time. And I think we said in our pot set review that, that Dig Through Time would be better in sort of Grixis-like type decks, and we yep. said Oath-type decks. Yep, exactly. And that's exactly how it showed up. Showed up across all the combo and combo control style decks across Bug and, and Grixis colors. Whereas Treasure Cruise just shines in these aggro control archetypes. So-called oh. aggro control. <laughs> misnomer because it's it's not that simple. But yeah. yeah, granted, granted. Steve, do you want to touch on the the notion that action needs to be taken from a banned and restricted standpoint on Treasure Cruise? You know, I, I really dislike what they have. These printings should never have occurred in, in a <laughs> sense. I mean, they're obviously mistakes. They're errors. And, and, and of course, Vintage is all about errors. But what's frustrating, though, is I felt like I felt like Vintage was in such an awesome place. Yeah. You know, you had this incredible diversity. And I just feel like these cards have screwed things up. You can restrict them, but they're not going to go away. They're just going to be the new singletons. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really glad that Wizards resisted the urge to restrict Jace. Because a couple years ago, we were all about the four Jace decks. Mm. Jace, I mean, in a pyromancer field, it just looks so antiquated. <laughs> it's a very interesting uh, point. From yeah, from looking back about about fifteen to twenty months ago, Jace was all anyone wanted to talk about in vintage. And now there were some Jaces in these oath lists. Okay, I right. take that back. Just Mark's oath list had two yeah. Jace in it. Uh, but it's yeah, he's a yeah. shadow of his former self. And, and Jace also was, you know, certainly part of his function was to sort of not just grind out games, but to eventually assemble these these so-called haymakers, right? <laughs> the key ball combo, Tinker and Yawgmoth. But Delver is so well-positioned against that kind of deck that the haymaker decks have just disappeared from the format. And it's fascinating how um, how all these convergence of forces and factors have led to that outcome. I mean, Delver is obviously super well-positioned because it's virtual card advantage. I mean, obviously my match against LSV, the one I should have won... <laughs> <laughs> but lost illustrates the virtual card advantage uh, generation. But cage hurts hurts those archetypes. Um, uh, you know, uh, Delver. Sorry, uh, Pyromancer is just devastating for Jace. Um, Pyromancer stymies most of the popular removal as we observed when it was released. It really makes abrupt decay weak. It's it's fascinating to see. But the point is that um, everything that's happened has you know obviously dig through time is not the most synergistic card with the Ogmos <laughs> Um <laughs> And so. Uh, you know the delve cards aren't do not they do not fuel Yogmas will. Isn't to say that you can't play Yogmas will with them, but they do have some degree of internal disenergy. Which is why you can only run one to three dig through times if you're going to play it at all. Yeah. And most people landed on two. Right. Um. But it is interesting how that those those like so, so to the extent that that T-Ball 
Young Muswell and Tinker are being marginalized. That also explains the marginality of Jace. Mm -hmm. So that's part of what Jace's power is, is finding those cards very quickly. But as you observed, the contraction of the metagame is, at least at the moment, a direct result of Cons of Tarkir. And some people point to the the 50% representation of Delver in the top eight for vintage champs as justification enough that treasure cruise needs to go. And some people point to what you've described, the contraction of the metagame as justification. But well, I want to hear your thoughts first. Well, it's, it's interesting that we continue to call this archetype Delver because this, this is the ap- ap- apotheosis of young pyromancer. Yeah. Uh, you mean young pyromancer is the card that has 16 copies in this top eight, yeah. right? I mean, that's the card. I played three Delver and four pyromancer. And uh, let me just explain why. So people often say oh, Delver is the worst card in that deck. It's not entirely untrue. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not <laughs> a worst card. It implies that there's sort of like this hierarchy as opposed to sort of these different mo- modes. Delver is not there because he's the best card you can put in that slot in some sort of objective sense. He's right. there because he, fit, he he does he allows you to play different kinds of roles. So you cannot beat reliably beat a merfolk deck, I think. Delver is the kind of deck that allows you to beat merfolks. It allows you to choose different kinds of roles. When you want to play the aggro role, you can play the aggro role. And, and obviously, he's pretty necessary for the mirror. Um, it's no secret I played Delver as a control deck. I played as a hard control deck that has the capacity to switch roles. I mean, I played Delver as, as slow as people play Lansdale. Mm-hmm. That's no joke. I really do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I played it in a hard control role. Um, but the point is that it's interesting to note that I came out bonkers in favor of Young Pyromancer when we did our set review a year. What was it? Our M13 set. Was it M14? M- M14, yeah. M14 set review a year and a little year over and a year. half ago. Half ago, right? And and it's now taken until now for Young Pyromancer to finally reach his peak. Um, so, you, you know, and, and, and Pyromancer, again, has all these functionalities we talked about. It's horizontal growth, uh, it's uh, capacity to deal with workshops in terms of board presence, and capacity to, to new, neutralize uh, um, planeswalkers um, in, in targeted removal. We're going to come into an era where we're going to see a lot more board sweepers. You know, that we, we'd seen hints of that, but that's going to be a, a much clearer pattern. But that also makes Delver more important because people are going to be, you know, obviously a flip Delver will get swept away with a, um, a, a Pyromancer token, but, um, you know, Delver can help can help you get more sort of, you know, it'll get you a little bit more resilient to some of these board sweepers. Frankly, I just want to mention that my deck is anchored by Trigon Predator. <laughs> Trigon Predator is, is the rock of my deck. <laughs> the guy who survives the engineer explosives, the guy who survives the pyroclasms and volcanic fallouts, he's the guy I want at the end of the game attacking for two a turn until I win the game. Mm-hmm. I can totally see that. And also, I mean, Delver, I, I, I've participated in that summation of Delver as the worst card in the deck. But I think that also speaks to what kind of player you are and how you want to play that deck. Right. If if you're a control player picking up this deck, then Delver is the card that's furthest from the control plan, basically. Right. You can play control with Young Pyromancer. You can play it with Trigon, as you just said. Playing right. Delver with control is kind of like, you know, there's very few situations where that's the case. Right. You know, you well, attack, you tag Jaces, or you trade with a Lodestone. That's about the most controlling a Delver gets. The most controlling a Delver gets is pitching to force them. <laughs> that's fair. <clears throat> but to your point, 
uh, you would lose a lot of games against Workshops, for example, if you didn't have Delver. Exactly, exactly. And Merfolk. And, and Merfolk, Merfolk, yep. Workshop is a great example because he's a one-mana card that trades with Lodestone Golem. Yeah, in- infinitely it's valuable. Hard, it's very hard for Workshops to deal with a Delver. I mean, it really, it, it's it's strange, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, none of their board... They have very few creatures that fly. Yep. Very few. And one way of dealing with it is copying it with a Metamorph. Yeah. Or removing it with a dismember, but it's not easy. Also, Delver, if, 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 against something like Terra Nova even, Delver coming down on turn one, even if they sphere you out, it's gonna uh, win Mistress Factory can't get through a Delver, it's, I mean, without trading. Right. You can, if, you can, if you can turn one Delver, turn one Delver against Terra Nova will win the game a lot, a, like a super non-trivial percentage of the time. Yeah. And a Pyromancer, you just have to generate a few tokens, clog up the board, and he'll get there in seven turns. Actually, well, less because they'll do damage themselves. Let's get back on track, though, about metagame contraction. Yes. So some players have pointed to metagame contraction. You've just observed that the metagame was nice and diverse before Treasure Cruise was printed, and now it's not so nice and diverse. Yeah, it's screwed up. But do you consider that to be a motivation? I mean, in and of itself, that's clearly not a motivation for for a restriction. Yeah, I think it depends on your perspective. So there are, I think, two basic perspectives. No one at this point can deny that, that, that Delver was the best performing deck at the Vintage overall. Well, yeah, Oath. Yeah, you could you could you could argue the Oath, but I mean, again, let me ask you something. If Ryan had beaten the Oath player, had not made one of the two mistakes and beaten the Oath player and then won the tournament, would there even be an argument that Oath was the best performing deck? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a fair point. Yeah. There are. I'm not trying we, to. Do you and I don't talk about aggregate metagame yeah. uh, performance very much because we mostly just don't have the data yeah. but the conversion rate of two oath decks at the top 32 and the top eight no doubt but what if they're all very relevant metric yeah yeah but there were nine delver decks in the top 32 not yeah. you know and, i mean there could imagine if there had been two delver decks it, let me put it another way if there had been two delver decks in the top 32 and one won the tournament i mean i would i would think the reverse is true that oath in, but but nine oath and yeah. there were four oath in the top eight i still say oath was by far the best performing deck. You well know, yeah. I, I don't think i mean that is one definition of performing that i don't happen to agree with i guess okay. is my point it de- I mean, it certainly depends on what percentage these decks were in the total metagame, which we yeah. don't. We, I mean, which we don't, but we do for the top 32. I mean, right. if, if half the people walk into the room with any given deck and it represents half of the top eight, that's just that's just okay. statistically so, meaningless just performance. Just acknowledge right? that there's, a, there's a, a clear argument for Oath, but I, I think overall... Delver's was is perceived as the deck to beat. That's unarguable. That's and definitely it, true. And but but even beyond that, it's either one of two or the <laughs> best performing deck in the tournament. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also worth pointing out that there's performance, but then there's also just straight up influence. And right. Delver was certainly exactly. the most influential yeah. deck yeah, at the exactly. event. It's it's the the deck that made Oath the metagame choice. Exactly. Sorry. So um, I think that the diversity, so there's two parts of this question. The first is, is the, is the diversity of the format reduced to the extent that a restriction is warranted? And the second question, the second part of the question is, what effect would restriction have? <laughs> you know, uh, good point. Very we good don't point. Even know what's coming up in the next couple sets, but we can only hope that they haven't printed more of these cards because that's well, really going to screw things up. They already did print one. It's called Dig Through Time. <laughs> If you restrict Treasure what Cruise, I'm saying we hope there isn't a time walk of this effect. Oh, I see your point exactly. But or a but demonic tutor, or given a, what we given what we know already, at least restriction would almost certainly result in builds of Delver that have four gush, one Treasure Cruise, and one Dig Through Time. Right. That's where I'm heading. That's where I'm heading. That's what yeah. I'm trying to say. So. 
taking the uh, we have to do both questions separately because I think they would I think they may point in different directions. Yeah. So you know, taking the second question first, it's like, well, well, what good is what good is restricting treasure crews if most decks have maybe let's say three point five on average, mm-hmm. and they're just going to add one dig through time, and they're everyone's going to add a mystical to them. You know, <laughs> well, it's like. You know, well, what good is that? Yeah. On the other hand, on the other hand, I do think I do think that a lot of people are getting a lot of mileage out of Delver, just powering through with four treasure crews. And I think that I think that would be it would it, here. Here's my my prediction. I think eventually Delver is going to prove to be a problem, and the card that will get restricted is treasure crews. It'll probably happen. I'm going to say next summer, <laughs> maybe just maybe the next fall, because I think we're going to see this treasure cruise deck continue to perform at a high level, not necessarily at the local tournaments, but overall. And I, like you said, and I think, I think what's going to happen is that a lot of people are going to think, okay, I can prey on these Delver decks with these certain kinds of tactics, but they're all, they all have answers within Delver, not just answers, answers within Delver, but really simple answers within Delver. So the mm-hmm. Bomberman decks and engine explosives can be answered by Null Rod. You know, the, the Oath decks can be answered by the configurations I'm running and, and so on and so forth. And part of it is people also get better with Delver. So people will understand how to play these matchups in a much more sophisticated way than they showed up with at Eternal Weekend based upon the games that I observed. Um, and so they'll understand, you know, that you don't run a Delver out against an Oath, an, uh, you know, turn one against an Oath deck. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't run, um, you know, that you don't overcommit to the board against board sweepers, like Toxic Deluge and things like that. You really have to modulate your threat, fo- threat force on the board, um, you know, anyway. So those are the sorts of things that are going to come into play a lot more. Do you think that this performance for representatives in the top eight and two in the top four is justification in terms of uh, format dominance? Well, part of what goes into format dominance is you have to dominate over time. That a single snapshot or data point, as you put it, is never enough. It's never. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient to make that sort of decision. Um, and so you you know, think about it like it, this is what it really reminds me of. I think this is like 2007, 2008, all over again. Mm-hmm. So you've got the Vintage Championship that I won, and I beat Rich. You know, that's another thing I just want to say. Going back to my little mini rant earlier, <laughs> the thing that sucked about this tournament is the people like I, I felt like it didn't reward necessarily the strongest players with these archetypes like Rich Shane and I both went 6-3 I made a, a lot of bad mistakes um, but it was like 2007 in the respect that the unrestricted gush and like the gush decks were just the best the next like whatever Star City Games tournaments were all just like half of like half the top eights were gush decks I think that if it, looking at the, the big vintage tournaments going forward that's what we're going to see we're going to see a lot of these treasure cruise decks and so it's going to resemble that to a large extent the unrestricted gush and for a year it just dominated and they ended up restricting five cards we're entering a period like that where you know it wasn't just that gush like couldn't be beaten remember like the workshop decks were just as good at performing against the gush decks but it so warped the diversity of the metagame that they eventually restricted five cards one of which of course was flash but they restricted merchant skull brainstorm ponder and gush and so i think we're entering a period where it's ultimately going to end with the restriction of treasure crew something else you touched on there is format adaptation we've already listed a few things that we fully expect to happen do you think that this format can adjust to treasure cruise or are we just well, uh, are we just destined for a treasure cruise to be a third to half of the metagame you know, if it remains unrestricted? Yeah. You know, it, 
The answers to Treasure Cruise are cards like the Hail Spellbomb and Main Deck Leyline of the Void and Dredge, which I expected to see, and I in fact faced, which is one reason I don't want to be the Delver deck that goes all in on Treasure Cruise. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Delver decks that play four Treasure Cruise and two Gush. I think that's just wrong, because it might have been right it might be right for the mirror, and it might be one of those things like a taxi improv that's insane in the mirror, mm-hmm. you know, but not necessarily great against workshops. Um, uh, I think what, what I'm trying to say is that um, you, you don't want to, when you go all in on Treasure Cruise and you find yourself in a matchup where Treasure Cruise it just for somehow gets neutered, you're going to be screwed. But the Delver decks, for the most part, don't go all in on Treasure Cruise. They split between Treasure Cruise and Gush, and that allows them to have a mixture of sources of card advantage. So... What I'm saying is that it's hard to neuter the, de- neuter the Delver deck by neutering Treasure Cruise. Mm-hmm. That having you can have a Nihil Spellbomb and even prevent one Treasure Cruise from, from going off, but they're going to be able to build up to another one sooner or later. And it, you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to translate that marginal advantage into a more enduring formative advantage, and that's that's a challenge. There's no sort of simple or easy way to do that. Mm-hmm. So you think that. I mean, it's what I hear you saying is that there's just no thing that hurts Treasure Cruise enough. Yeah. That's I mean, also playable, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's not. Yeah, it's. it's you not can't that, play main deck Leyline of the Void. Yeah, I mean, you know, Paul Mastriano and, and Brian, I think they had three Nihil spell bobs in their sideboard, and they obviously have welders. So, you know, you know, it's not like they can't get a lot of mileage out of it. Um, and the in the Bomberman decks, I, I, I mean, Notion Thief is also a good answer, but the problem is, it's just not. You know, the Delver decks have so many built-in answers to Notion mm-hmm. bolts and pyroblasts. Um, yeah, there just doesn't seem to be. I mean, it isn't to say there aren't answers, but there aren't answers that have a knockout punch. What do you make of the modest technology that didn't show up in great numbers, but things like the Is It Static Casters and uh, Electricries of the World? Yeah, I think those cards are pretty irrelevant. I don't need. <laughs> I mean, and part of it is it's a role problem, right? I mean, so it's same thing with Grim Lava Mancer. It, when you're playing the Delver Mirror, it, it depends on how it plays out. There are some games where you want to go on the aggro roll because your opponent is, just won't be able to stop it. But for the most part, the key in the Delver Mirror is not actually winning the damage race. The key is drawing more cards than your. It's being able to get your gushes and treasure cruises to resolve and go off first. Mm-hmm. That's the key. Um, um, and so if your focus is just getting out your creatures and winning the game, you're not going to win the game. <laughs> you need to be able to maintain control and be able to switch into the optimal role. Electricery can be a blowout for players who play the wrong way. Uh, but I don't think it's an op. It, it may be fine, but I don't think it's optimal. I mean, there's so many cards like that. You could run a Grape Shot. You could run Electricery. You could run Grim Lava Mancer, which is anti-synergistic with Treasure Cruise. Um, you could, but I don't, I don't think it's really worth the sideboard space. Okay. I thought it was interesting that uh, looking at most of the Delver lists I saw, they had at most one card that you might bring in for the mirror. Exactly. Yeah. It, is that really, I mean, are, do you think you can be successful with that deck if you're fighting the mirror basically entirely from your main? So so it's interesting to see the various configurations in these top eight deck lists. I thought maybe at some point we'd take a closer look at them. But there is a significant mix. The night before the tournament, I had a conversation with Ryan and I convinced him to play Spell Pierce. I actually think that may have been wrong. <laughs> I ran one Spell Pierce and one Pyroblast, and he ran two, two Spell Pierce. Uh, and the main reason I convinced him to play Spell Pierce is because, again, Oath of Druids. I anticipate a lot of Oath. Um, 
uh, Ryan ran one spell pierce. I guess we both ran one. Um, but w- what I'm getting at is that um, notice that Dario had no flusters. I didn't notice that. I see. Um, the the point here is that there are a different configurations of counter spells. Sorry, the person I was thinking. Of, yeah, Dario has two spell pierce and no fluster storm. Um, spell pierce is almost entirely dead in the mirror. Almost entirely dead. Fluster storm is actually very good in the mirror. Sure. Because it can counter gushes, it can counter treasure cruises with minimal storm. You know, you can gush in response to a treasure cruise and then play Fluster Storm, and usually we'll go to counter it. Um, and you can also get card advantage. I mean, the, one of the best things with Fluster Storm is trying to get a two for one out of it, right? Like they do something, like they bolt, try and bolt your creature, and you play gush in response. They pyroblast your gush, and then you Fluster Storm those spells. Um, Blowout build. It is also interesting to note that uh, only, let's see, only Christian had two misdirections, and the only other misdirections in this top eight were in the Oath decks. Mm-hmm. Um, misdirection is a huge blowout in the mirror when you misdirect a bolt targeting your pyromancer to your opponent's pyromancer. <laughs> it's a gigantic blowout. Sure. Um, so, so I'm answering your question indirectly, but what I'm saying is that um, there are configurations of counter magic in main deck cards that strengthen you or weaken you to the mirror. So it's not quite as simple as saying, what's your cyborg plan for the mirror? It's kind of like, how have you constructed your deck towards the mirror? And it's not as obvious as, oh, I'm playing with the max number of pre- uh, pyroblasts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that yeah, that's sort of what I wanted to suggest is that it, it it's it's actually a sort of a nuanced, subtle thing. Looking through the list, it looks like Ryan Everhart's sideboard had the most cards you might bring in in the mirror with three. He has two pyros and one electricery. Yeah. Everyone else had one or two things that you might bring in in the mirror. Yeah. I mean, and part of it also is the cards he's got. I mean, the only card he's in the, the only obvious card he's in the sideboard out is Spellpiers. But Lightning Bolts are great in the mirror. Sure. You know? So uh, unlike Grixis or Oath, where you sideboard out Lightning Bolt, you know, um, there's not much that's dead. So optimization there in terms of sideboarding often requires taking out dead cards, but there aren't a lot of dead cards. Mm-hmm. He probably sideboards out Dak, Faden, Spellpierce, and the Trigon for those three cards. But I keep in Trigons in my mirror. And why is that? Well, because I don't have anything to sideboard out. I don't have enough to sideboard in. I and see. Trigon is fine. It trades with Delver, and it you know it, it you know it blocks Delvers and it blocks tokens all day long too. And if you get into a situation where both players have Pyromancers, it's really hard to break through on the ground. Right. And and Trigon also survives the electricery, all this stuff. So. Right. So where do we go from here? We've talked about the fact that you expect Treasure Cruise to be restricted in the future, basically because of this archetype. Yep, but it's going to take a lot more evidence, but I think that evidence will eventually manifest. You think that, I mean, as we've said, at the local level, it's not as though Magic Online events may be... Delver will continue to put up 4-0 performances in dailies as long as they fire. But that's not going to drive action on Wizards' part. I mean, occasional dailies. No, but I think that they'll put together all the evidence in totality and make a decision. Yeah. I mean, I could be wrong. It could be the case that that eventually... Eventually, you know, that, that um, Delver won't continue to perform at this level in the big event, but I, I think it, it will. You know, it could be that there is some metagame answer that really keeps in check, but not, it's not in the things that I've seen so far. It's not going to be in Oath. It's not going to be in workshops, as we've currently seen them. It's not going to be in these landstill decks or these control decks that use these board sweepers like Engineer Explosives or Volcanic Fallout or Pyroblast, Pyroclasm or Toxic Dailies. It's not going to be in those. Mm-hmm. I... Personally, I always take a, a pretty f- uh, free market approach to ban and restricts, as you know. 
I mean, I was the one playing with three Trinospheres when at the last point when you could yeah. play with four. Yeah, I mean, we're both laissez-faire when it comes to that. And I'm of the expectation that smart players have not yet had a chance to really adapt to this this particular uptick in Treasure Cruise Delver. And I really do genuinely think that there's something out there just in terms of basic, really fundamental magical archetype uh, phenomena. Because you've already touched on it. When you play the mirror, there are ways you construct your deck so that you have a plan in the mirror, basically, and such that you maximize the things that you need to do. You need to draw the more cards. You need to not focus on being the beatdown. Basically, what you're saying is you want to be the control player in the mirror. You want to overwhelm your opponent with your cards, not with your damage. But there's also a way you can build your deck such that you, you take that to the next level. And I think it's tied into players observing, or stating at least, that Delver's the worst card in that deck. It's not like Delver's bad in the mirror, don't get me wrong, but there could be a better creature than Delver that would help you really own the mirror. And I just can't shake the notion that if this deck is really going to be that that commonplace in the metagame, yeah. with these jockeying for position in terms of three Gush or four and three Treasure Cruiser four and how many Preordains, I think there's some more fundamental moves that can be made that can just shift you toward the control role in the mirror such that you'll win those matchups, but it, it gives up ground in other matchups. you have something specific in mind, or are you just theorizing? I think that it. I think you need to look at decks like Blue Angels for what I'm talking about. And I'm not saying you Blue Angels beats Delver. What I'm saying is that Blue Angels is a sort of deck that ostensibly has all the same kind of cards in it. It's got like a dozen creatures, and it's got a dozen counter spells, and it's got some draw spells, but they're, they're all different cards. I'm simply thinking that if you take a one-mana creature like Delver out of this shell and you replace it with another two- or three-mana creature, your creature base starts to look more like Blue Angels does, right? Which starts at three and has more flash and snapcasters. So, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I ran Vendillion Clicks in the summer up until the NYSE, mm-hmm. this archetype. But the problem, one problem is that Vendillion Clicks trade with Delver. You know, <laughs> even though it's disruptive, it's good against both. You know, it just, it trades with Delver. I think it's very difficult to position the deck in a way it gives you more control mm-hmm. against Delver than what you have because you need to be able to deploy blockers on the same basis as the Delver deck. So that's why I don't think you can go less than three Delvers. But you said yourself, I mean, we keep calling this deck Delver, but this is Young Pyromancer's right, world, right? Right, but what, it, yes and no. I mean, it is Young Pyromancer's world, but in the Delver mirror, it's it's uh, Delver plays a much more outsized role. Yeah, I see your point. Now, I, I'm, I'm not arguing for too many specifics here. What I'm simply pointing out is metagames tend to do yep. this. You've seen it in, in environment over environment over the history of Magic right. on the Pro Tour where there are two aggro decks in an environment, and if they're, if they're the deck to beat, then the one that moves further up the mid-game ladder, further toward control, further toward being a mid-game deck, has the advantage in the mirror. But That's then that opens the door underneath that for other yeah. archetypes to come in. Yeah, and this is this is the fundamental point, though, which is that. The proper role with Delver is the control role. Yeah, that's what I'm getting and, at. And then when you, once you accept that, once you understand that, then I think it actually means that a lot of the so-called answers aren't actually answered. Yeah. Because all these sort of fundamental, quote, fundamental counter tactics are actually targeting the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, and... Electricery. And, yeah, electricery or, or just, you know, Ratchet Bomb, Toxic Deluge, Volcanic Fallout, Pyroclasm, etc. They don't stop 
the Delver pilot from generating more card advantage, both in real terms and virtual terms, than the opponent. And yeah. so eventually, what, what I'm excited about in my match against LSV sort of illustrated, and I expect this to happen more and more, I ex- I, I loved watching Josh uh, Utter Layton's match. Again, I forget who he played in the BSL, where he almost decked, but he won with Pyromancers, because that is how a lot of these Delver decks are going to win games yeah. in the near yeah. future. You're going to win games. I'm not kidding you. You're going to you're going to win games with, with less than five cards in your library with just a couple cards left because Treasure Cruise draws so many cards and you're, it's about you know maintaining control until the la- very last moment where you can win the game. So I expect with the I expect that the Delver pilots are going to have a thinner margin for error, but they're still going to have a very pronounced advantage. And so we're going to see a shift to more removal. I think we're going to even get to the place where we see volcanic fallouts. Not just like yeah. trickery, but volcan- grape shot may actually end up being very good in the mirror. It's yeah. going to be hard to stop. But my point is that um, we're going to, what's way that the Delver decks are going to adapt is they're going to just understand that you just play the control role and outdraw your opponent with Gush and Treasure Cruise and virtual card advantage. I've got the perfect card for you, Library of Alexandria. You know, I, I, in in you know, you and I have both been on record as saying that in 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 certain kinds of vintage metagames, Library of Alexandria is not nearly as threatening as most people think. Library of Alexandria is a card that I had was the bane of my existence up until Treasure Cruise. Treasure Cruise actually mollifies Library to a much greater degree because it, the the gush purely gush based Del- Delver Cruise decks could not overwhelm a library without going into a, a hard aggro role. That is, you could not beat an active library in the control role by itself in the long game. But there are a couple of adjustments I made to that. First, I added a strip mine to my deck late summer. And with all of your cantripping, it's not hard to about, I'd say, 50% of the time your opponent has library to be able to find a strip mine when you're just digging within a couple turns. And secondly, and more importantly, Treasure Cruise actually just outdraws library. Especially if you're playing with the four Treasure Cruise decks. You just, it's a joke. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. It just, out, it just massively outdraws library. I, uh, I do not debate anything what you just said, and I think you're totally right on, but I brought up library specifically about the mirror. If you're playing Delver properly and you're in the control role in the mirror, doesn't adding library to your deck mean you're going to get better in the mirror? So one of the things that I, this summer, when I was noodling around with, you know, late summer with the Delver decks, I played a library in my main deck. Gush is a great card to getting up to library, um, but I think the strip mine is just better ultimately because it serves both the control and aggro role. I don't think you can afford to run both strip mine and library, although maybe, um, you know, it may be the case that, I mean, library is a perfectly legitimate card to run, um, but it, it could be, it could be. I, I just think that the strip mine, the strip mine has proven better, especially because the strip mine is really good in the workshop matchup, better than the library is. What if the library is in the sideboard and you bring it in for the mirror and certain other control matchups? It could be. I mean, it could be. It's just the sideboard space is so tight. Mm-hmm. The library is probably not better than another pyroblast. That that is an example of what I'm talking about about cards that play the right role in the mirror, but. What if you were, and what if some players might reach the conclusion that, hey, yeah. if I'm going to be playing the mirror for half of my rounds, I'm just going to put this library in my main deck. Well, I think the first thing we would do is we would get to four pyroblasts between main and sideboard, and then okay. more red blasts on top of that, because there's no better card at countering Gush 
or Treasure Cruise than Pyroblast, except Mana Drain. Yeah. And Mana, Dra- Mana Drain can't be used in these decks very well. Pyroblast is, there's, it's very hard to counter Gush because, you know, Flush of Storm doesn't counter Gush if it's the first spell pierce. You just, they just use the mana, obviously. But Pyroblast is fantastic at countering Gush. And, and obviously, Treasure Cruise is the same story. To that point, and referring back to my example of Delver being possibly the weakest link in the control role in the mirror, what about Snapcaster Mage? Snapcaster Mage seems to do most of the things you're yeah. talking about. So you, you remember how at the beginning of this conversation we talked about striking a balance between the arms race and the broader field? Mm-hmm. So you've got like the arms race in the mirror or whatever, and then you have to be able to balance that against the broader field. Um, you know, to some extent, you know, you can continue to add Pyroblast, but then you're just going to continue to lose margin against workshops and these other decks that matter. Right. right? At some point you strike a, uh, you know, a homeostatic balance. Um the um that that sort of it, it, if especially if you can strike about it allows you to solve some of these puzzles and maintain your the 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 deck's fundamental edge on the entire metagame if not the format um you know um snapcaster mage is a card that you can run i mean so for example if just building out a delver for the mirror right you would you would run four pyroblast main deck and you might even have red blast in the sideboard nice. <laughs> but another car another card you you would probably run four treasure crews and you would probably use a snapcaster major two to allow yourself to flashback treasure cruises <laughs> so it's about really maximizing the treasure cruise right um but also the flexibility, right? Snapcaster is yeah, whatever sure. card you want it to be in the mid-game, yeah, within yeah, reason. Sure. For sure. But I mean, that's the sort of ultimate logic. But I, again, there's a limit to that. And the mm. limit is the constraint of the actual rest of the metagame. Yeah. Well, thank you for entertaining a number of individual notions here. I'm still of the opinion that smart players are going to find advantages in the no mirror that... No that open the deck up to other weaknesses, I guess. Because yeah. that sideboard is super tight. When you look through all the sideboards in the top eight, there's not a lot of variance. There's no. there's two to four cards that come in in the mirror, and some of those are kind of soft, as we've talked about. Electricity is probably going to disappear. I'm granting, I'm granting, just as a fundamental reality, that the Delver will lose margin against the field. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that it's still going to be the best deck. That's fair. That's fair. And you're still, so you're predicting that Treasure Cruise will need to be restricted not necessarily because of what we see right now, but because it right. will it will exist in perpetuity, really. Long-term effect. Yeah, interesting. So talk a little bit about your experience with Oath. We didn't even get to the Oath deck and, and, and what you saw and, and how you felt about it and, and just your observations on the metagame. Well, as you already called earlier in the show, I definitely anticipated the Oath was going to be very well positioned, and uh, it seems pretty obvious that it was. There's a lot of variability in how you construct Oath, from your creature base to your counter base to your ancillary effects to other workarounds for and removal for Grafdigger's Cage. So you can't expect to win an event if you don't have a really good plan for Cage. I believe I didn't win this event because I didn't have the best plan I could have for Cage or in the rest of the environment. Notice that the first place deck had, and this was the trend I noticed on on the the data I'd seen, they're all running three show-and-tells me. That is definitely one of those factors, and I do not like show-and-tell. I do not like show-and-tell because I think it, it makes your draws even more unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, Oath already has major issues with wonky draws, and you're just adding a bunch of others to your deck. And also, I wanted to play only two creatures the way that Demarza Mastriano had drawn up last year. Yeah. But that parlayed into another issue, which came out of the prelim, where, <laughs> similar to my story of Jacob Hilty uh, oathing to Gristlebrand as his last card, I lost 
a game and subsequently fell out of the prelim because I oathed down to three cards in the library, and in my case. And afterwards, I went straight to Brian DeMars and said, hey, what is your thought on aggressively oathing when you've already done it once? Because in my case and in Jacob's case, I already had one of my oath creatures in play. I had Blightsteel Colossus in play in my case, and Jacob did too, in fact, in the example I gave. And oathing for Gristlebrand is strategically the correct choice, but you're opening yourself up to something like 5% or give or take yeah. uh, to just lose the game right there. Yeah. And it's so Mark used the uh, the Maelstrom Pulse as his answer, one of his answers to... Uh, yeah, I don't like that. I don't know. But I'll get back to that. But right. my point is, is that that experience and my subsequent conversation with Brian said that he and Paul both begrudgingly accepted that they had to put Gaia's Blessing in their deck. Now, if you just want to play with two creatures, then I think you have to. But if you're going to play with something like Show and Tell, then I think you can afford to go up to three creatures. And if it's not Tinker, then I think you can go three Gristle Brands. If you're going to play with a bunch of Show and Tells, there's lots of variations in how you build Oath these days. You have to have a plan for Digger's Cage. Uh, Ancient Grudge is, uh, not Ancient Grudge, Abrupt Decay is very popular and good. But you can't really afford to run four Abrupt Decays post-sideboard, and even then it's not really fighting on the right axis as we observed. Can I just interrupt just for a second? I just want to make a note in the context of Delver that Abrupt Decay was an answer that people had developed to Delver, um, Delver's Cage. And that was one reason I have been so big on two misdirection all throughout the summer, is that you really want to misdirect the Abrupt Decay back to the Oath, in addition to the need for Nature's Claim, because you just 100% rely on Cage. Okay. And and I agree completely, and that's why I don't think any uh, intelligent oath pilot would take that tack without their own misdirections. So that's I think has led directly to the increase in misdirections in the oath lists as well to try and fight on that access. Right. But all that having been said, I also think that another one of the key decisions in terms of fighting cage and how you construct your your oath list is the non oath win conditions. And I'm talking outside of oath, outside of Gristlebrand, and outside of show and tell. Then you have the options of your Planeswalkers, yeah, Jace, keep, and, and then Tezzeret pivots onto Key Vault, which yes. pivots onto Tinker, which yes. pivots onto Blightsteel Colossus. So you've got a checklist, you've got this, um, this, this mass, this amalgam of things, and you need to pull out about 60 to 70% of it and, le- right. and get to what you really want. I chose to play Tinker because I really wanted to simply have access to Tinker. I think it's great. Yeah. And I chose to play Key Vault because I wanted to have a legitimate, and I use that term loosely, but a go-to plan for when I just could not deal with Cage. And that's and Key Vault is is that. I mean, there's there's no simpler thing, especially if your your opponent is has spent a lot of resources and you just can't afford to or necessarily find the right answer in the right time. There's mana constraints thanks to Abrupt Decay, all these reasons. So at any rate, I landed on a list that had Jace, it had Key Vault, it had Tinker for Colossus, it had Gristlebrand as the other creature, and it had Gaia's Blessing along with a nice batch of counters, which included Spell Pierce for a number of the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, Spell Pierce was going to be helpful in the mirror. It's, ha- it's a tiny bit of a hedge against Terra Nova, which is problematic. And it's just a more universal counter that I thought I could apply in more matchups, as opposed to something like Flusterstorm. And I'm glad I made that choice too, because Spell Pierce was quite good all day. Great, yeah. And I lost to I lost to Delver in an interesting scenario, though, which was partially my inexperience, and partially uh, I pulled the trigger maybe one turn too early and going for Key Vault. I thought I had played very well in recognizing that my opponent was going to get Cage down, and I was not going to be able to remove it. 
yeah. I, I had naturally drawn um, Voltaic Key in my hand, and oh. I got to a point where I had Demonic Tutor also. Wow. So I <laughs> I made quite a show, I might add, out of the fact that this Voltaic Key was just something to cast because I had eight cards in my hand at uh. one point in the mid game. He had no creatures in play. He had played a second cage on the board. I was like, oh, man, how am I going to get through this? <laughs> get it to eight cards, play this Voltaic Key with a shrug. How many cards were in your opponent's hand? Oh, we were both at seven cards. I mean, oh, we were we were draw go in the mid game. Okay, um, so he's got after, a lot of counters. Yeah, and you slipped the. Oh key. yeah, oh yeah. He just let the key resolve. Um, but as soon as he saw it, he thought about it, and he knew that hey, this is a path to victory that circumvents uh, my cages in play here. Well, and then a couple turns went by, and I had drawn. I was light on lands, unfortunately. And I saw a window because he played something on his turn that tapped him a little low. And uh, and so I, I played out my whole hand, and he played out almost all of his hand. And the very last card in my hand was Time Vault. And he had only one more counter spell that would counter a Time Vault, because he had spent forces on other things earlier. Right. Uh, so I, 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 just, I just got a little too antsy and got to the point where he had just enough counters to stop me. And then I lost because he followed up with Pyromancer. I mean, I was basically spent. But... It was. It goes back to what you said about that role in that matchup. Is he quite intelligently did not run out Delver on the early turns. He knew that the matchup in the early turns focuses around Oath and Cage. And if Oath gets on the board, then you need to pivot to deal with that. And if Cage gets on the board, then you adjust your plan accordingly. And the fact the turn that I cast my Time Vault and a bunch of spells leading up to it, he uh, he pitched Delver to Force of Will, as you said. <laughs> so it, I think it was very well played by my opponent, and I got a little bit too uh, trigger happy on trying to win that game with Key Vault. But my my Oath list, I think, was quite good. I think you need to open up some sideboard slots for, or at least a plan for multiple ways around Cage. Yeah. These show and tell lists already have that baked in. That's fine. I was not willing to sign up for the variants that adding show and tell to your list in- introduces. But I think if you can manage to put together a show and tell list that also has two, maybe, Jace's in it, then I'd be a little bit more comfortable with that. I think that Jace is actually quite good in Oath right now. Yeah. No, that's it, so this is what I wanted to circle back to. So, I mean, the clear trend with Greg Fenton's deck has been to go to more and more show and tell. Last year in the top eight of the Vintage Championship, he had two show and tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but now he's been advocating three if you look at his lists. Yep. And I I think that you've got to choose a different angle. Harry, I'm sorry, Mark had one show and tell. I think the other guy had three. Yep. Um, but, you know, certainly you can use these Planeswalkers and the Key Vault is one angle. But there are others, though. There are others. Um, and one of them, did you consider a Maniac in the sideboard as a Trump to Cage? Did you even consider it or did you just decide it's the wrong way to go? I just decided it was the way I'd, I didn't want to go because um, the Delver decks, in my estimation, are so well positioned to fight Maniac just normally. I don't know how many bolts they're going to have after sideboard, but, the, but they're going to be bringing in blasts. They're going to have blasts yes. for the treasure cruises. I, I was expecting to have to fight through four blasts post sideboard. That would be my reservation as well. I mean, if it weren't for Pyroblast, I, I, the Delver Ducks are going to sideboard out bolts. So they, they are, yeah, as much as they can. As much as they can. So yeah, that, that I was just wondering if that's something you considered. Um, but it, you know, certainly against workshops, you know, uh, that's certainly a trump to, to cage. You do have to worry about this member, but you know, it's, it, it it allows you to at least function with cage out. Yeah, it's absolutely true, and it's worth considering, especially for one's own environment. I just there are still tons of ways to build oath. It's like all the choices you have with Delver, but instead yeah. of 
counting different numbers of similar cards, it's different numbers of completely different cards. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I do I do want to point out that I played one dig through time and it was quite good. I, I could I could I think dig through time at least as a one of is a starting point for Oath now. And I think two is totally defensible. Harry Corvasi had two in his list, and I think it's it it's a joy to have dig through time as kind of a fallback when you're when the oath that you've got is countered or they resolved cage and you need to find a way around it dig through time feels so good i'm wondering if the tinker at bot ever cost you a game where you wish it had been gristlebrand no it didn't in testing it happened a couple of times but i found that it's it's totally relevant and it's good that you're asking because i found in a lot of cases when i fanned open my opening hand and i had access to oath as a as an early line in the game I frequently, by the time turn two or three came around and I found myself resolving and then the triggering oath, I frequently had to choose tactically to counter certain spells, whether or not the creature I oathed up was Blightsteel or Gristlebrand. I sometimes had to choose different lines, and I sometimes had to hedge and just say, if they've got, if I counter this and then they have this as a follow-up, I'm just going to straight up lose. A good example of that is Dak Faden, of course. There are, there are many situations when the possibility that my opponent had Dak Faden, it was definitely a consideration for how I had to structure my turns and respond to their various spells. And I had to let a few things resolve that if I only had Gristlebrands, I wouldn't be so concerned about, for example. So it's definitely a consideration. You have to be prepared to deal with your opponent's deck if you're going to run a Tinker-based Oath list. Yeah, hmm. interesting. And on a similar on a similar vein, the the uh, Key Vault has the same weakness. Basically, there were some games when my opponent might not have known it, but Key Vault was I was all in on Key Vault. And if they just play deck and take the half of the component that I've committed to the board, then I was out of gas. <laughs> but it's really hard to determine that kind of thing when you're a deck player. I will say also that when I was exploring oath lists, I looked at I looked at a lot of oath lists, and one of them that's really interesting is um, I think it's Brian Kelly's uh, Salvagers oath list. Yes, he's had a little bit of success with. I I think I found a way to improve upon that deck just in how it executes the Salvagers combo and and how you build around that. But in my testing, I found out that there were far too many cases when I would oath up Salvagers and just have to pass the turn, and I found that to be unacceptable. I don't think you have to pass the turn very much with Gristlebrand. At least pass it without gaining any demonstrable benefit, which is what happened with Salvagers. Even if you construct that deck with, I don't know, five or six reasonable recursion targets in it, it's it's still... It still uh, rubbed me the wrong way in terms of the actual results. Now, I will acknowledge that you can win games through Graft Digger's Cage and other stuff with right. Salvagers, so there's totally benefit to that. And Cavern of Souls really helps that matchup, I think, in the in the Blue-Red Delver sense. So if I was playing Delver, I would definitely not want to be facing off against the Salvagers list. But in terms of the nine-round tournament, as you observed earlier, I don't think it was the right choice. So we've covered the macro effects of the the metagame leading into the event, the Vintage Super League, the the micro effects on decks like Delver and Oath and, and others. We've covered the potential restrictability of Treasure Cruise and the, the general playability of Dig Through Time. Yeah, and how good is Tabernacle right now? 
holy smokes. <laughs> that card Sorry, is... as, as a Delver player, how do you feel about facing Tabernacle? Well, the, I think one of the there are a number of you know there's a, a lot I know, a lot I've learned, and there's some things I don't know, and some outstanding questions. One outstanding question I have actually is the extent to which Tabernacle may actually be good in Delver against Dread. If I can fascinating, change, if I can change my four ley lines and three cage and X number of ingot chewers coming in against Delver to I mean against Dredge to cutting. Here, here, let me just frame it this way. Delver players who came into this tournament thinking they were going to beat Dredge with Ravenous Trap were mistaken. The old, oh, yes. And, and, and I think Rich Shea is an example of that. He he lost to Dredge, and he used Ravenous Trap. Unless you, even, if, even if you have Snapcaster Mage, which makes it slightly more valid, mm-hmm. it's just not enough. Um, nope. And if they, the Dredge deck has main deck Leyline of the Void, and you're all in on Treasure Cruise, you're really going to be screwed. Um so um, I think that if, if a plan can be developed that uses Tabernacle and Cage, that might actually be very good. I, I think Tabernacle is one of these cards that's going to be a problem in Vintage because it's like $1,000. I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but, not, not, but not by much. But as a workshop player, I think Tabernacle is going to be part of this class of card the workshop players should begin using to fight Delver. I, it's it's fine. Here's the thing: it's not that that Tabernacle is going to make you know. Let me let me put it this way. Let me reframe. <laughs> the Delver player does not generate a million tokens against workshops because to do that requires you to play spells, and what workshops do is inhibit you from playing spells. But if they can pr- limit the number of tokens you can develop over the course of the game and commit your mana to those tokens, that makes cards like Tanglewire a lot better, a lot more valuable. So I think that Tabernacle is a completely valid one of these cards that we've been talking about, like Ratchet Bomb, that sort of class of cards to help combat these Delver decks. Yes, that's my answer, yes. <laughs> it's worth pointing out that Nam Tran's top eight workshop list with Metalworker had two Tabernacles in the in the sideboard. Yep. I'm I completely agree with you about Tabernacle's veracity in a workshop deck against things like Dredge and Delver. I'm confused though about your idea that you would play Tabernacle in your Delver sideboard. Yeah. Yeah, so because Delver is not fighting okay. Dredge on all the mana axes that Workshops is. No, it's true. It's true. But so someone did I don't know who did this. I saw someone had done this and I've been talking with Ryan who obviously top board this event about that, and we're just not sure. <laughs> but the theory behind it is that it can shave you off a sideboard spot slot, and there's not much that Delver that Dredge can do about it. So if you look at sort of the array of anti-Dredge cards, they all have certain kinds of vulnerabilities, right? Nature's Claim, Chain of Vapor, um, Wismare, uh, Ingotchewer, you name it. Cards, you know, Tabernacle is a card that Dredge cannot remove. And the theory is that so first of all, it prevents them from accumulating a certain number of bridge tokens. And yes, they can reanimate Icarids one per turn, but the theory is that it will slow them down tremendously, such to the effect that your counter magic actually becomes relevant. So they can't just strip it out. So the thought is, I mean, a narco amoeba can't sit and play, right, with that. The only thing, you, so it's a little hard to describe, but if you could sort of see it play out. So you've got turn one, let's say you go turn one, and they go turn one bizarre. They activate the bizarre. And then you go turn two tabernacle, right? Well, if they have two bridges in their graveyard, next turn they can dredge a whole bunch, and maybe they're going to return one Icarid, and maybe they're going to uh, get a nar- two Narcomoebas into play. And the point is that if they're not quite able to combo out, they are going to lose all their tokens at the beginning of their next upkeep. All of them. Mm-hmm. And so they're not. it's going to give you time loss. 
And it's also going to slow them down because a lot of times, you know, certainly the cabal, they're going to have to want to use their cabal therapies to strip your hand. Um, and the cabal therapies are going to be slower and weaker because they're losing tokens that they can't then generate other things with. So the only thing you have to sort of worry about is them getting a critical mass at the turn that they can, in other words, get a critical mass with Dread Return and win that turn with the uh, Flamekin Zealot. But that's a lot harder to do when you can't accumulate tokens across turns. In fact, it's nearly impossible. Not impossible. It may be a slight exaggeration, but it's very difficult. I don't think it's I don't think it's an easy thing to do. So the theory is that Tabernacle, in, in terms of how it impacts you, I mean, um, you can keep around just enough tokens to block their things. So you don't have to invest all your mana. I mean, when you're playing against Dredge, it's not as if like you're using your all your mana every turn. You know, you're you just like let's say you have three mana in play, right? Um, let's say it's like turn four and you know turn three. Let's say it's turn three and you have land, land and tabernacle. Well, um, you know, you're it's fine to play a, a pyromancer here and the next turn pay one upkeep to keep the pyromancer around. And you can you can probably get a couple lands into play and just um, you know maybe keep one other token around or maybe two tokens you know just to survive long enough and eventually you're just going to be able to win the game with Delver. You know it just it doesn't matter what the win condition is. You can attack with two for a two one right. Um, and that plan necessitates still finding a cage at some point though right. Um, it's not clear that, that it's not clear to me. Um, it seems pretty clear to me that once you let them dredge seventy or eighty percent of their deck. Uh, regardless of what they have in play, as soon as they play, right? So they have four bridges and four, blood, let's say, three blood guests. Yeah, they're just going to be able to play a land, get three blood guests, therapy you three times, have a zillion yeah. tokens and dread return. I mean, eventually you do need to get a, a cage out, but um, the question is, how much time can it buy you, and can it buy you enough? You know, yeah. um, and you well, can do things. And of course, I, of course, you can do things. I, I, I don't want to underestimate this. It, Tabernacle plus ingot chewers buys a lot of time. That's a good point. That's a good point. If you can mix up what you've got and um, and be chipping away at their bridges, right. then they can't have that big explosive turn. The best they can do is put right. a few blood gasts into play, which might get to attack you if they've lowered your life. It might not. And might not, yeah. And, and also, and you, you can jump some of them, sure. Exactly, you can jump some of them with tokens you generate that turn too. So you could like, you know, gush in response, generate two tokens or a token, and block one of them. And and you know, it, anyway. That's a good point because. The, the turn that you've bought by having them sweep their board during their upkeep, basically, and have to rebuild is a turn where you can evoke an ingot chewer and erase those two bridges. Then they delve some more. I'm sorry. Then they dredge some more, and maybe they don't kill you that next turn, but then you have another creature. And if you can get to that point in the mid to late game where the only thing they're bringing back are blood ghasts with no other benefits, right. then your other cards can fight that access effectively. Yeah. Like Young Pyromancer can fight that. Yeah, and your counter magic actually becomes online because it's hard for them. It, it, without, without generating tokens across turns, it's harder to use the Cabal Therapies. Sure. Efficiently. Sure. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I it's completely untested, but I've seen it in a, in a top eight. <laughs> I was surprised, to say the least. <laughs> so, Kevin, where do you think, given our discussion just now, where is the format headed? I think the format is headed for lots of Delver, but with more creative solutions. 
more creative builds are going to come out. I think you're going to see people splashing some cards that we haven't, maybe we've touched on them and maybe we haven't. Yeah. I really want there to be another treasure cruise deck too. <laughs> I mean, how bad is it, right? There's already, there's already like half a dozen archetypes that play force of will. Why can't there be half a dozen treasure cruise decks? <laughs> my, my nightmare is that there, we get a bunch more of these type of cards in these next two sets. I, I hadn't ever considered it, but you've now kind of, Put the fear into me that they build some kind of god awful delve time walk. I mean, oh jeez, it I mean, could be it terrible. Have, yeah, it doesn't have to be a time walk. It could be a tutor, or you know, just who knows. Oh jeez, can you imagine like one black and seven demonic yeah. tutor? Oh god. Oh jeez, I know it could be terrible. I mean, I, we've already covered in our set review how surprised I was personally that both of these cards, Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time, were in the same set. I think that's way it's way overkill from an overlap design standpoint to have both these cards in this opening set. Yeah, I, I agree with you in terms of where you think the, the, the format's going. I think we're going to see a lot, you know, but I think we're going to be stuck in this paradigm of Delver being the deck to beat. And, and you know, that's not the paradigm you want to be in. You want to have a, a diverse field and multiple decks, you know, at the top. But I think we're going to be in this paradigm where Delver's the deck to beat and people are going to be using these very specific fundamental answers, like we've said a million times, engineered explosives, Pyroclasm, Toxic Deluge, Tabernacle, <laughs> uh, Ratchet Bomb, things like that. And I think that it's it's ultimately not going to prove to be, you know, I think in the long run, we're just going to continue. It's going to be a debate because the results are not going to bear out the dominance of the deck to the extent that, you know, I think vintage players demand in general. But I think in the long run, it's just going to prove to be a problem. And the metagame eventually be restricted and the metagame will open up a little bit. You've... You've already talked about how the local tournament results will not mirror the right. vintage champs results, and I couldn't agree more. I think that there will be there will be confirmation bias in both directions of the argument, yep. Yep. which is exactly. unfortunate but in, exactly. uh, inevitable. People are going to successfully be able to beat Delver with the tools yeah. we've talked about. Exactly. I mean, who knows? Maybe Josh Pachusek is going to win the next big East Coast tournament with Landstill, and everyone's going to yeah. say, oh, "Look, there's nothing to be worried about." <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> I mean, right. These kind of things are going to happen on a local level. Right. I mean, it's sort of like another way of putting it is, you know, you're the workshop player in the Vintage Championship top eight. And you go, well, I went six and one against Delver. I beat six Delver players, but I lost the one in the top the top eight. Right. The, the, the problem is that what's missing from that is the one in the top eight is the one that was prepared for workshops. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And so... I'm not saying that's what happened, but I'm saying, you know, 95% of the Delver decks that I expected to be the champs, would, I did not expect to be able to win because yeah. I didn't think they could beat both or workshops. Um, and in, any, in any case, I think a lot of that's going to happen at the local level. I think that no one who's listening to this who might be in favor of Treasure Cruise restriction should should shy away from the format, though. I really want to see those players who are angry about it and those players who really don't like it find the creative solutions because I believe that they're out there. And yeah. it might not it might not be that you can actually fight Treasure Cruise. I mean, Niall Spellbomb is not a great answer to Treasure Cruise. As a strategy, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it might be that Treasure Cruise still is well-represented, but we can find metagame positioning to just fight the deck as a whole. I yeah. personally don't have a problem with there being a deck to beat. I'm personally of the opinion that for the last several years, there have been 
a couple of decks to beat in vintage. I mean, you don't show up to an event without four to six sideboard cards for dredge and four to yeah. six sideboard cards yeah. to shop. Those are decks to beat, well, and so, so I don't see that as a, a particularly bad thing. This is something we didn't we didn't specify. So the year that Michael Negro won, there were four workshop decks in the top eight, and it looked mm. like workshops were on the verge of sort of becoming a problem. I mean, you and I are sort of on record of very rarely calling for restriction, and I'm not calling for restriction here. Thing. We still need to. I'm just predicting where I think it will go. Yeah. Um. I in the last ten years, what's the last time I called for restriction? I think I eventually called. I didn't call for restriction for Trinisphere right. <laughs> because I felt that um I felt that you know there were design things that people could have made, and I just didn't feel like the Trinisphere decks actually were metagame dominant from a statistical perspective. Right. Um. There, but there were decks I did call for restrictions. I don't remember what they were, but they've thirst. been thirst. Thirst was the uh, yeah. Thirst is the card that I thought was most obviously deserving. Of restriction and i would not never restrict to unrestrict thirst would never unrestrict thirst um but I, I definitely thought thirst needed to be restricted um but there have been very rare times and and i think that it, we're gonna have to see what the data is but um you know i i'm not i don't i think there's a difference between sort of needing to be prepared for dredge and needing to be prepared for some decks and actually this is the best deck and the paradigm is revolving around it. you know there's a paradigm that's set around it i think that's where we are and that's different than okay dredge is in the metagame or oath is in the metagame i need to have some plan for it as to as opposed to this is a deck that i'm putting in this metagame because it's good against this one deck <laughs> yeah well i acknowledge that there's definitely a difference between those things and i won't be surprised if 11 months from now, you and I are preparing for another Vintage Champs with Unrestricted Treasure Cruise. So unrestricted? We'll oh, yeah. I, I won't yeah. be surprised if it's still around a year from now. Yep. We'll see. Tell us what you think. Yeah. So our question for this week is just that. Do you think that Treasure Cruise should be restricted now? Now, there's lots more nuance to what might happen in the future, but we want to hear if you think it's if it's justified at this very moment in response to Vintage Champs. Thanks for listening to episode 40 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We did not game.